0: Grab a brew, listen up and get back to you. This is Things I Wish
1: I'd Known podcast. Hello and welcome to Things I Wish I'd Known with your host Rachel Welford, the podcast where we create positive change through conversation. And today I'm super excited to introduce you to another incredible person who's got an incredible story. Anuradha is neurodivergent queer, Indian dysphoric person who lives in Greater London, so we already have something in common. And they really like to create change with small business through ethical and accessible inclusive practices. And I think it's a really important conversation to have. As a white woman, I, you know, try as hard as I can to educate myself about all these kinds of things. But it's quite difficult when we've got um, cognitive bias and all these things where we don't necessarily, we've never necessarily had to think about somebody else's experience in the world. One of the things I love about doing this podcast and talking to different people is that we can learn um, through these conversations. So I'm so happy that you're here with me today. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us. Yeah, thank you. What a pleasure too. I I love you already. <laughs> One of the things that I really wanted to touch on because it's pretty incredible. You had your first business at 11 years old. Yeah, that's right. I was so
0: I was so silly as a kid. I think I've always had entrepreneurial kind of spirit in my mind. My parents both worked at IBM. Yeah. So they were computer programmers. They were immigrants to the U.S., um, and so that was there. But they'd always have these side gigs going on. So I would help with that. So at eleven, I created my own reading card company, and at the time, I called it Unra the Cards Incorporated Cards with a K, yep. the K Yeah. name. And yeah, I just sold them. It was silly, mostly just using the scrap paper. My, you know the in these big companies they have the print jobs yeah that have the beginning sets of paper like to, yeah. to identify so she'd bring those home and I'd use them for scratch paper for math or whatever but I also started making
1: designs out of them because they were pretty colors oh it's amazing I like lo- it's interesting the language that you use around that so well. you're like oh it was just a silly thing in my head I'm like no nope. like hustle culture you were there 11 years old <laughs> let's get this done. You know, I don't think there's anything silly about anyway. that. So tell us about your journey then. How did you go from this, you know, 11 year old child who's sounds like super creative, has got this real entrepreneurial spirit into creating um, the counter constellation? Wow, what a long journey. I think like many people born
0: in my generation, that we've had a lot of different jobs, worn a, little, a lot of different hats over mm. the course of our lives. So initially I was a, a school teacher um, I was a, and I was a researcher in labs. Actually, I was a researcher in labs first. And so that was a technician. I somehow ended up spending a lot of time looking at enzymes. Right. Got pigeonholed into that very easily, but I was doing a lot of that as an undergrad. And then as a grad student and then I went into education, I think the idea of I used uh, this one machine all the time and I was in a room by myself with the cuvette and, you know, spectrophotometer, I got really tired of being alone in in a lab. So Mm. I went into teaching and I really enjoyed that um, pieces of that. And I think in a way it set me up because I learned the skills of being around a lot of different students with a lot of different needs. I was in a low income area with high, like need. the students had a lot of different needs, diverse needs. So it really was a good learning environment. And I really wanted to make them feel like they weren't because they were kind of put aside, put down, called stupid, like all these things Mm -hmm. that were really demoralizing to them, not given a lot of Um, access into things, not being taken care of. So that was a big part of my journey and how I showed up in the world. I had already lived with people in our household with disabilities. I have my own neurodivergence and so on. So I'm used to it, but then getting to put it into practice and seeing the kids who were falling through the the cracks, actually giving them a little bit of support, a little bit of attention, and they started thriving, you know, like Mm. really caring about science for the first time in their lives. So that was that piece. And then I actually went into grad school and that's what brought me here. I came here to do my PhD in dance to continue my master's work, where I was looking at how in colonialism in India, through the British colonialism, how did that change identity? How did that shape who we are, how we show up in the world through dance? I love that. So I came here to do my PhD. It didn't really work out for a number of reasons. And that's when I started my business.
1: It's super interesting that topic as well of you know looking at colonialism through the um, I guess veil of dance. Mm -hmm. Can you uh, can you elaborate on that a bit more? Like I just from a personal perspective, people won't know this necessarily. I don't think I've ever shared this on the podcast before. I was a dancer for many years, like when Mm -hmm. I was a kid. Yeah, and um, I think I started when I was like three or four, and I used to do contemporary dance. And I danced until I was maybe like, I don't know, 16 or 17. I think I found like boys and smoking and it suddenly wasn't as... (laughs) 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 Suddenly wasn't quite as... (laughs) Um, But I I loved to dance and I still do. You know, I dance in different ways, but I still love to dance. And I think it's such an incredible way of being able to express something without language and without words, which can within that like transcend so many you know different cultures different because you're just watching the movement and I always find it interesting how different people will interpret what because obviously when you're choreographing you'll think about um what you're trying to convey but then it's always interesting to see what other people think you know when Mm -hmm. they've overlaid so can you tell us a bit more about that or yeah absolutely
0: like you I started dance very young I was four and it's Bharatanatyam. So it's a temple dance style from South India. Mm-hmm. So uh, unlike modern dance, there is often a, um, like a set way of choreographing and a set interpretation. Yeah. Like there might be, you know, if you're talking about, they're often spiritual based. So we are talking, having conversations with God or talking about, Hey, um, Shringara is the rasa, the, the feeling that we're really trying to convey in Bharatanatyam. Yeah. So it might be shringara, like love mixed with jealousy or love mixed with devotion or love mixed with, uh, you know, so different feelings. And so the point would be you're speaking to God as if they were a little child and you're showing that motherly love through mm-hmm. that piece. So you have different types of flavors in dance. And actually, the spiritual piece is that as me emoting certain things and doing these relatively mundane actions in my dance, meaning miming, you know, my love of a child, like swinging them to sleep or that sort of thing, that kind of devotion that I put in there, that. It then has an impact on the audience, mm. and they see this, and then hopefully they can feel that same feeling, the rasa, the flavor that I'm trying to convey. And then through that, they get this elevation to, that's, that's kind of what our scriptures talk about, mm. that, that then they get this higher feeling that they can be united with God or divine or something like that. They can have that oneness with spirit. That Amazing. that we want. So the, in this way, it's it's a performance. So in in Indian arts, in Indian dance arts, uh, Hindu arts, I should say, there is a there is a, a combination. Dance and drama go together. They don't. They're not mm. separated. So there's an yeah. element of both of these in our pieces, yeah. and this sp- spiritual overlay that hopefully we can also incite these things. And I think that is very similar to even the way Shakespeare or other you know famous composers or dance people that's
1: what we're trying to do in some way like you convey know? a message through <laughs> and I, I think it's really interesting what you touched on there around like the energy as well in the, it, you know what I heard in that is that kind of what, what I'm feeling and how I can connect with the audience and hopefully they connect with that same feeling and that's that kind of energetic piece isn't it that unspoken kind of connection that you have so how how did I mean through your research, it must have been super interesting to see like how did colonialism affect? That was it a bit I don't know if you can summarize that for a podcast. <laughs> there are mechanisms that
0: colonialism impacted the world or even this dance world. Yeah. I'm looking at a very specific subset, even then in Telugu-speaking India, because my family is Telugu speaking.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I was looking at a very interesting thing
1: yeah
0: um, so so it's very very minute very niche so obviously it did impact it and I would say the biggest changes are it went from a temple art and that's also partly Br- the British it's also partly due to colonialism through other forces in India like the Mughal Empire and so on mm. so there, there's a there's a richness there's a tapestry yeah that it went from a state, like it went from a temple art to a court, like a royal court art. To a oh. stage art in a few hundred years, that evolution happened. And that the last bit happened in during British colonialism. And so how we performed the the oftentimes the lower class people were kind of written out as as it became elevated and it was attached to Indian nationalism, which I don't think is a fair thing to say completely, but it there's there's earmarks of that as part mm-hmm. of the independence movement. Um, there's also, there's a ver- just like, and this is what I would say because I'm a teacher. Yeah. That um, what happens in the story of colonialism, there's one right answer. So I kind of call it the billboard effect there's Mm -hmm. one answer this is how beauty looks this is how we talk Mm -hmm. this is how right queens english or whatever these kinds of things and then all the other people's stories get pushed to the narrative but Mm -hmm. if you look at different lineages of dancers and we start center centering them dance is so vast the stories the lineages my own teachers have their own stories even though they Mm might have had the same teachers two of my teachers um studied with teachers who were went to kalakshetra so it's a um a famous school mm-hmm. dance school so but even their experiences with that one was a Finnish white woman and one is um his his lineage is he's a Kuchipudi dancer in India and so the male is the dancer in that in that lineage the first male was the son who was supposed to pick up that art so he two different people with two very different stories and connections to their art and they're both incredible dancers yeah so their story the lineage of their different teachers how they how they know them and see them Um, so actually it's amazing that we've had this hundred thousands of years tradition that we can still have this embodiment even today Mm.
1: Yeah, I find it so fascinating as well, because through my kind of work that I've done on myself, but also working with my clients through trauma, I think movement is so important. When we're looking at like resetting the nervous system, when we're looking at people being able to have like freedom from, from emotion, I think emotion can often get really stuck in the body. And I think in the West, especially, we tend to think that talking is the best way to... You know, um, process some of those emotions. And of course, talking has its place, I think, but I think embodiment and movement are so much more powerful a lot of the time. And sometimes people don't want to talk about it, you know, and that's what I love about some of the tools that I use. It's like if you've had a really traumatic experience that, you know, you don't really want to relive, you don't really want to share. You can still process it without having to go into the details and things like that through movement, through things like EFT, um, one of the tools that I use. And I, th- I think embodiment is so important. That's right. Because the trauma lives in our bodies. Yeah. So
0: us connecting with that, I think, is in a way that's not triggering, right? That we're not yeah. reliving that same memory. Can we dance that piece out? Can we? Yeah. You know, um, there was times when I was in rough spots in my life and some of the dance themes, obviously this, some of the themes are, um, I would call patriarchal. I don't know if other Indian scholars would agree with my take on them, but they That's were okay. often talking to a male God saying, Hey, why don't you look at me? Why don't you pay attention to me? Right. right. That was, that was, that was a, a theme in several dances. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I'm i not I don't love performing those kinds of pieces anymore, but they're part of the repertoire I have. Yeah. And I remember at that time there was a line in a dance and it's in Telugu, so I won't try to say it for you all. But it was basically, am I such a burden to you, God? And mm. at that time in my life, I was dealing with thoughts of being a burden yeah. in the world. And my dance teacher who was with me, he was like, can you take that in? Can you dance those feelings now? And that's part of what saved me. That's part of what got oh. me through that situation. And then I actually felt closer, not only to him, because he understood me as in my teacher, but also I understood the dance in an, in another level.
1: Oh, that's so powerful. So, so powerful. I think um, I definitely resonate with that. When I was suffering with depression for many years, I definitely had that feeling of, I'm a burden on the world. People would be better off without me. What's the point? Why, Why? you know, why am I here? And I think sometimes thinking back now, some of the tools that people sort of told me to do at the time were like, you know, get up and go outside for a walk. And I used to think, no offence, but, you know, like, oh, fuck off. Like, <laughs> not even get out of bed. You want me to go for a walk in nature? Like, gee, I don't think you really understand what's going on here. But actually it's so true because that movement and being out in you know in a nice space full of nature is actually really helpful but it's just um, difficult to hear at the time and I think actually if I'd have had maybe other movement practices whether it have been dance or something different I think it could have really helped Like I think being able to embody that feeling and just be with it whether it's through dance or meditation or however you're going to process it is just so powerful for being able to release it isn't it Yes, absolutely. Uh, dance and journaling certainly saved my life many times. You know, yes.
0: just being able to be real, yeah, be with, be with this, um, not just myself, but also higher power, or ancestors, or other other people beings that maybe want the well, you know, that well wishes for us, but we're not connected to in that moment.
1: Yeah. Do you think that kind of having gone through that stuff and being able to embody those feelings and having, you know, to, to kind of process that stuff. Or do you think that's helped you within your work um, today?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think there's a lot of people who do similar work, let's say DEI work in general, diversity, inclusion, when yeah. work in some way. And there. so because I've had training both as a scientist, as a writer, I was a professional writer and editor for a time. I was a teacher. I did dance. So there's Mm. the embodiment piece that brings a different flavor of how I can show up for my clients. Because I am going to be thinking very practical things that we can be doing. Yeah. And I really want to meet people where they are, not yeah. force. So some people are like, just come tell me exactly how I can be more accessible. And that is against my mentality completely. It is yeah. we're going to start where you are. Who are you as an organization? Who are yes. you as the individuals that comprise this organization? And who are you together? Yeah. And from that. Who needs to be accessible to you, right? And we don't yeah. all have to be accessible in the same ways. We don't, right? But if we're not including people who are right there, then what's the point of doing more inclusion work mm. to bring in more people that we can then harm? This is, this is a backwards mentality, in my opinion. So yeah. I really want to address Who's there?
1: Where are we coming from? And what do we want as our organization? Yeah, it sounds like keep... a culture piece. Yeah, You know, that kind of like if the because I think there's a lot like I go in and work with companies um, as well doing, you know, kind of consulting on mental health and uh, teach mm-hmm. meditation. And um, mainly I teach about kind of burnout and, and stress management when I go into corporate. But, you know, me, I often say to, to companies that I work with similar thing, you know, like if your culture's effed up there's no point me coming in and teaching everyone you know like on stress awareness day and mental health awareness week you're going to pull me out the dusty cupboard and I'm going to come and do a one-hour talk and inspire everyone or teach them some tools that they can use and then you're going to shove me back in the cupboard again and go back to overworking everyone you know not giving people proper deadlines, not giving people proper support, not paying people properly, not allowing them to take their holiday. You know, all, the, all these kind of things that I'm not, you know, any companies that I do work I'm not saying that you are <laughs> you doing this, but this is the things that you see constantly. It's like, no, you need to change from that inner piece so that, you know, the work that then is being done actually filters through. Otherwise, it's just a tick box exercise and it's not you know, and I imagine with, I, I haven't uh, done much work in kind of ethical, accessible um, inclusion space, but I imagine there's a lot of people who are like, right, okay, how many black people do we need then to make this inclusive? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or like, or, or like, what is this
0: we can do? Like, oh, if I just use the hashtag black lives matter or just use yeah. the back, then I'm covered, right? And yeah. it's like, mm, but how can we really acknowledge land back and in indigenous sovereignty? Even from your organization right now, we're making products, and mm. we're we're our business is made by extracting labor mm. from people unfairly, or extracting from the earth without giving a thought about it. That's where we need to be thinking. It is mm. not just this, like you said, a tick box activity of putting your pronoun somewhere and yeah, you know, and using. You know, or the right hashtag. This is; those are just rearranging deck chairs. Yeah. If we really want to do deeper work, we really need to confront ourselves. Like, if we're thinking about gender equity, then mm. we need con- deconstructing that that uh, gender binary internally. That we've because of colonialism, right? That that's where that came from. Yeah. Was a lot of gender
1: diversity in a lot of cultures, especially in India, right? Because I used to have five genders before colonialism, I believe. I'm sure. I, um, yeah, read I've that. read that as well, but I think there
0: was a there was. I've heard different people quote even up to sixteen genders, so I'm wow. not I'm quite sure. I'm, I've not read our scriptures about those kinds of pieces, yeah. so I can't speak of for all of India. But there was a lot of a lot more inclusivity and understanding. And like in many cultures, um, I recently interviewed someone who is a trans woman, a black trans woman in um, Venezuela. Mm. And she was talking about there was a spiritual element to being a trans person. And um, another Indian diasporic person who's trans also said the same thing. So I think there was a cultural element of these people can help us in a spiritual way as well. But that kind of all became subsumed yeah. in, uh, by the colonial this is what masculinity is this is what femininity is and yeah. how we constructed this gender uh, binary so if you're if you're interested in being more gender inclusive the place to start is really by looking at our own ideas of how gender shows up in a social way in a practical mm. way in a, you know
1: I think it's oh, so yeah. difficult as well isn't it to uh, because when you've got unconscious bias, the whole kind of part of the point is in the title, right? It's unconscious. And so being able to start to shine lights on that part of your own psyche. And, you know, I've done quite a lot of work on this on myself. I think anybody that's doing self development work anyway, will, will start to notice things about themselves that they think, oh, that's weird. I didn't know that about myself. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you start, you've got to really be down for the work, haven't you? And I think this is what's quite tricky. A lot of people will just say things like, "But I'm not racist," or um, "I don't care if people are trans," or whatever. Like, do your thing, you know. I don't. I don't care if people are gay. Just whatever doesn't doesn't bother me. And that's great, but it doesn't actually overcome necessarily the un- unconscious bias and all the stuff that's been programmed into us just through living. Like, if you think about um, I grew up through the kind of like 80s and 90s was was my childhood. And you think the amount of imagery that I was shown um, through those formative years of what's acceptable in terms of uh, female body shape, what's acceptable in terms of beauty, what's acceptable in terms of relationships and how that works and the kinds of things that you should maybe... Um, I'm personally, I'm straight. And so I think there's a lot of um, messed up narrative around male, female relationships and how you know you just go oh it's not his fault he can't you know he can't control his emotions or men don't have feelings like these kinds of narratives that we've got one pick and then looking at everything else that doesn't affect you as well where can people start because if it's all unconscious and we have these biases and they're you know implemented through our, our culture through where we've grown up through our family narratives through all these different things if people are listening and they're thinking, shit, where do I where do I start? If I want to look within myself, because I think that's really where this work begins, isn't it, for that's everybody? Right. How how do they get going? What what kinds of things do we need to be asking ourselves? Where do we start? That is an excellent question. Do you have a few weeks i'm just saying <laughs> <laughs> again i like to ask you you know a really difficult question and be like if you can give me that answer in a kind of like really neat five yeah, minute answer <laughs> I mean, this is
0: but but honestly my life's work has been around looking at how capitalism and colonialism have been indoctrinated into us through mm. our schooling through media through All of these other things. So, the thing to what I would suggest, and it depends on where you are in your journey, but as a general piece of guidance that I would give to to a lot of people, is start questioning the biases that you're being presented day in and day out. Mm -hmm. There's a billboard with that message. What are ways um, when I used to teach English? We would learn to read against the grain. So, yes, we read with the grain. Because then that causes a little bit. So it's a yes person. Yes, yes, yes. I'm going to agree with every assumption and paradigm and everything like that. Every premise they're doing, they're handing me. I'm just going to take it on board. When we start to read against the grain, we start to not just automatically say yes. We start Mm -hmm. to read against that. Hey, what's the bias of this person who's speaking here? Hey, Mm -hmm. can I fact check that? Is that, you know, when when we're seeing this barrage of transphobia in this country, in the UK, mm. when, and people are just picking it up, people are just bathed in it. So you not actually, so you're actually not helping a trans person when you say, I don't care if you're trans and whatever, but you're not speaking up in any way to defend them. Because mm. right now, the, uh, the, the worldwide, but also here in the UK, it's fever pitch. So people are literally being killed or denied services or access. They're living on the margins of society. They can't get jobs. Their IDs don't match who they are. They don't get to Mm. be called how they want to be called. So just a zillion things. They might have job history as before their transition. So just when we start to unpick this, we can Mm. say, oh, was this narrative written by someone who was actually trance and living that experience or is this someone who's not we can start to question that when we start to think about you know it's these little questioning acts
1: why how are they doing this am I going to fall for this yeah you know I think it's also like being able to have open conversations where I think there's a lot of fear like I definitely notice this within myself like I have um, some good friends of mine who are non-binary. I've got people that are, you know, so I, I guess in my friendship group, I'm around people that don't, know, who are different to me, right? In lots of different ways, um, and sometimes I think, oh, I have to be really careful because somebody that I've known for a very long time, they've just changed their pronouns, and so for me to stop misgendering them it's quite tricky because I've known them that way for a long time but they're actually incredible about it and you know they know that I'm trying and I'm doing my best and occasionally I'll slip and then I correct myself and it's all cool but I know sometimes there's not much room and I think this comes a little bit with council culture right there's not much room for people to learn to make mistakes to change their mind and I think this is one of the things I've noticed with the internet and I'm not saying I, I don't actually know how I feel about this um but when people pull up a tweet or something from you know 20 years ago and say oh this person and they make a big news story out of it this person 20 years ago said this if that person has actively within that time you can see that they that's not their opinion anymore it hasn't changed now when the internet came out way back when, we were all posting loads of crazy, stupid shit on there because we didn't realise that it was going to be what it is today. And now we're kind of, because the internet is this incredible resource full of information, it's almost like we're supposed to know all the right language, every single potential cause and all the nuances and and ins and outs of it and and all these things without making any mistakes – We have to back every single cause. And I think it can feel really overwhelming for people because obviously I I would like to think anyway, a vast majority of people aren't out to harm. I think a vast majority of people are, you know, if you look at human beings in general, our nature is to be loving, is to be connected, is to work together. But I think sometimes how do we have more open conversation without creating that, um I don't even know what the word is you know like uh, for people on the audio version I'm making this weird thing with my hands of like I don't know like rubbing up against you know like when I think because it's such a heightened situation like if you are living as a trans person your experience in life I imagine is that you've been up against so so much hatred potentially danger constant so you're going to be hyper vigilant of any and then if someone's just asking questions you know quite casually and it's not really down to them is it to yeah
0: so oh, we don't like no, for everyone to, to learn it's like yeah. oh
1: it's so well, tricky yeah
0: and so the thing is the true people who are getting cancelled by and large are the people who are the most hurt. So let's, yes. you know, so let's True. let's think about that. Yeah. And also we don't want to be burdening unless we have consent and we have space in that relationship. Yes. It's a burden to be asking that person. So yeah. let's not ask our because let's be honest, white these this statistics out of the US, but I'm sure it's a very similar statistic in the US, um here in the UK. Yeah. White people have maybe one person of color friend.
1: Mm.
0: So white people, so we're thinking about white culture, white people only talking to other white people, Mm. and then they're burdening this one person of color. Maybe it's a black person or an Asian person or Latinx or indigenous person, you know, so we're coming there and we're asking this one person to do all of that labor Mm. force so that's maybe not the attitude we want to come there's a lot of people who've created amazing resources for beginners so if you have a little time and you're looking at pronouns you brought that up earlier that there are lots of people who've done excellent pieces books medium articles and so on that you can start
1: to do that there are actually medium go ahead sorry i love medium yeah so learn so much on that it's incredible
0: yeah. And there's so many excellent things. And then we can give, you know, the claps or, you know, send them money through buy me a coffee or whatever, tip them in some way for that if we can, if we mm. can, even just sharing it with other people, sharing it with our audience is that. That makes a difference too. So think about that. We can't be experts on everything. That is not true. It's really honestly for us to dismantle this capitalistic hellscape we're in, it's Mm. honestly going to take all of us to do our bit. Yes.
1: And I think that's the thing, isn't it, is actually taking the time to educate yourself. Journaling, I think, is also, like you shared earlier, an incredible tool. And especially when you're trying to work on your unconscious You know, sometimes just journaling things out, questioning yourself internally can be so powerful to help you get clarity on where
0: where to do the work.
1: And I think, you know, for me anyway, I think listening is just a really important part of the work as well. And actually listening, you know, actively listening to other people in the space who have that lived experience rather than getting your information, like you say, maybe from... I don't know what white news presenters on the BBC. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> be the best
0: way forward if we want something different. And, you yeah. know, the other thing is there's a lot of learning spaces set up for this. So that's mm. the other thing. I personally teach a class called Sowing Post Capitalist Seeds. And we it's not an anti racism or a gender 101 kind of environment, but we are talking about ways capitalism has impacted us through our body through money through you know Mm -hmm. these very practical things through land and so on how it's impacting us on a day-to-day basis in ways we didn't know we talk about the history and then there's space for this community to develop where people are dismantling similar things and then there it's it's not it's it's not a safe space it's a brave space meaning there is room for fumbling we will make us we might make mistakes in that space that does typically happen at least once or twice in a,
1: Mm. in a year,
0: in a, in a section. It doesn't, I don't think there needs to be shame associated with that. There doesn't need Mm. to be destruction of the person. There is a place for us to have a facilitating um, a deeper thing, have connection with the people. So we have a process in place to make sure any harm made We do have to. People are responsible for their actions and behaviors, so we definitely have that covered. But that's an those kinds of spaces. There's there's popping up all over, and Mm. in online communities, in real spaces. Yeah, you can go learn, and then you can practice not with your you know, your harm. you know, in a harmful way, Practice. Yeah. you get to practice with other people who are working on the same or similar issues.
1: Yeah. And I think it's giving yourself permission to make mistakes. Because yeah. I think so many people have um, some kind of story around not good enough mm-hmm. in one way, shape or form. And so they tried to try to do things perfectly. And it's like, in these spaces you can't really do it perfectly because everybody is unique and so the way that one person likes to be spoken to or the pronouns that they use or they might be happy to hold a bit of space to have a chat about race for example or Mm -hmm. ethnicity or what have you and then somebody else might be like no yeah, I'm not holding space for you and I don't want you know, and you did get that incorrect. And and so there's kind of like this space I think just for like learning and realising that in the same way that when we learn anything, like if you were learning to play piano, you're not gonna get every single note right every single time you play. You're gonna mess it up sometimes, get a chord wrong. And I think it's the same when you're learning anything, and it's like if you've really been your whole culture and the whole narrative has always been the very same and it's you know male female relationships and the world looks like this and then you've got to unpick all of that it's quite a big piece of work for people to do it it? does does. and where we
0: can start with that is um stop with this I need to get like this people come to me as if I'm the teacher and I am, I'm the facilitator in in those spaces, right? And asking consent is super important, as you mentioned, right? Yeah. Like everyone has capacity or wants to do that work right then. Um, but then they expect that I'm going to give them a gold star an A plus, And I'm like, no, that's not really my, yeah. my attitude. We We homeschool our child. And really part of that is undoing that narrative of mm. getting that A, doing, you know, Like, so what do we, so we go into a thing, not with the, I need to get a good grade, but we go into the thing of what did I want to get out of this experience and asking ourselves that. And then based on those criteria, did I do a good job? It like, was I honest? Was I, whatever your criteria is, you can make your own rubric of how show up. And that's very powerful, liberating to say, did I get what I was hoping for out of this experience? Did I really do my best? Not mm. from the teacher's perspective, not from a grader's perspective, but from my own perspective. And this, this is these are the millions of little unpicks we, we must yeah. be doing and thinking, who are we putting authority to? Like, are we thinking this person is an authority? Are yeah. we mitigating our own internal authority? So these yeah. are the kinds of questions we can be playing with.
1: I love that. I think what I'm hearing in that that you shared is almost like making the goal, if you like, to be growth and knowledge and learning rather than it being like, oh, I did my anti-racist work today. Aren't I a good human? And then off you go, you know, into your daily life. Well, because goodness has been associated with whiteness been mm. cut through
0: colonialism through through racism through the structural racism that mm. was created here and in other countries like um South Africa and the US and so on and the 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 construction of how whiteness has been mm. created is based on white equals good so when mm. we can start to challenge that narrative and white people aren't the only ones who need to do this work right Mm. so that we have colorism throughout like asian culture it's a thing right lightning skin lightening products and so on So, how how are changing features to look more is the european standard of beauty Mm. beauty versus so a a lot of people when i say whiteness i don't necessarily want white people to become defensive with that whiteness Mm. is the like fish swimming in the water There's not that we don't think anything bad of the fish for swimming in the water. And that's the paradigm they're living Mm. in. We've been saturated in a culture of whiteness and the ways that shows up. Goodness is one of those Uh, Mm. perfection. You talked about paternalism, right? These are all structures that whiteness tells us how we should behave in society using the queen's English or king's English. Mm. these are all, that's the mark of good English yet. Um, there might be other ways we can speak. Like my brother, yeah. my sibling, and I created Telugu English, Telugu and English. We would often mismatch, you know, mash up the words together. Yeah, yeah.
1: I love that. I used to live in um, a big warehouse years ago, and um, there was a, a group of people that lived there that we sort of like. Nicknamed the Europeans because they were all Spanish, Italian, and a lot of the time when they would talk, it was really interesting. They would mix, you know, mix English and Spanish or whatever, and you'd be listening the way, and then it would just, and then you just hear like I don't know one English word, you'd be like, oh, (laughs) it's like I love the way people. But again, I think this is what's so great is like when you can actually bring people together. And you can, I feel very lucky that I've actually lived in um, relatively, I think for a white British person, I think I've lived in relatively um, mixed spaces. Um, When I was a little kid, my mum used to child mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, children and there was all, all different children so we had you know Japanese kids black kids white kids you know Indian kids and my neighbours were Indian and so I used to go and cook with Sharon all the time hello Sharon if you're listening um, and so you know and I used to lo- I used to love it. it what was so funny about it was my um, brother and my sister and I we would be like dying to go and get Sharon's food because her food was like exceptional and it was so different to what my mum would cook you know it's like all spices and garlic and all this like amazing stuff and Sharon's kids would always be like oh hey yo have you got any of that Victoria sponge cake (laughs) you know from from my mum because they just wanted plain you know like because it was so different for, for them and I think actually when we can I don't know when you when you live in close proximity to different people you learn by osmosis you don't necessarily have to like I don't know you don't necessarily have to learn because you're just observing and being together mm-hmm. and it, I think it's a shame that actually what often happens I think you sort of touched on it earlier is white people have like one friend or and similarly I think a lot of the time and it's a very I imagine this is a very natural human trait is we want to be around people who look like us who sound like us who mm-hmm. um, have a similar interests to what we do regardless of what that is. And so we end up um, in these kind of like pockets where it's quite difficult to have that crossover and to to learn by osmosis because actually we're in these kind of, um, dare I say it, like echo chambers mm-hmm. of, of stuff. So how can people break out of that because it's also a bit of a weird thing isn't it you don't want to be like hey do you want to be my friend because I don't have any brown friends (laughs) or hey do you want to be my friend because I don't have any queer friends and it's like how do people start to you know break out of those bubbles you know regardless of whether it be um you know maybe they need more white friends or more straight friends or more how do you kind of break out of those spaces so that you can learn more by osmosis or is that even possible or am I being Um,
0: I think the conversation can be very different when I'm talking with my you know black indigenous uh, friends of color that have very radical points of view and Mm. so on I'm learning a lot there are Mm. it's a very different type of sharing yeah a different type of learning that can happen but how do you do that without damaging and her, you know, because mm. you know, like, we don't want to go back into this, like um, Gayathri Spivak talks about this of academia mm. in her work. And she's a scholar from um, from India. And she wrote this piece, Can the Subaltern Speak? And it's 20 page uh, PDF. You probably can find it online. It's, it was one of these life changing articles for me and one of the reasons i started to leave academia personally mm. is her her understanding was can't because the western model of education and academia is based on the global south and extraction So we are constantly extracting. So when we think about, hey, I want to be in these cool conversations. I don't want to be the work, do the work of being safe, but I want the knowledge. This is the extraction mindset. So what Mm -hmm. I would say is, how do you do it? Well, if I was, I'm not, I can't say that, right? But certainly I've intentionally made to go learn in communities that I don't know as Mm -hmm. well is curate my feed. So like on Twitter or yes. social media or reading books by very different types of people going yep. to book clubs, you know, so these, these kinds of things, you can bring those words and so on into mm. them. And then when they do ask, because you'll see that more marginalized communities are living more on the margins. Yeah. So thinking about gender equity, pay equity, that, there is a gate at the pay gap, but mm-hmm. then people who are queer or trans um, or non-binary people, they maybe get like they're living on $10,000 or less a year. This is a U.S. statistic, but I, I don't think it's mm. that similar, that dissimilar here. Mm. So when we're, when we're listening to that you're, you see their conversation obviously is around mutual aid and mutuality and community building. Yes. How can you be in aid of that? I see white fundraisers being fulfilled within hours or days. I see people of color's asks gone unanswered for months or mm. years. And they are just trying to get access to things that would help them survive, not even thrive, not even asking for big things. Yeah. They're unable to do that. This is how we can, I think, using our privilege, whatever sense we have it, we can leverage their asks. Can we ask, you know, bring it to our communities? Can Mm. we, you know, I've seen people give... You know, oh, I'll give you a free coaching session if you give this much to this fundraiser. So what I'm saying is don't go with the extraction mindset. Don't mm-hmm. go with what you can get. That is exactly you replicating colonial structures. Mm-hmm. And then to this with their giving in the way in the currency they have. So there's multiple forms of capital. We only think of a money capital. Mm-hmm. But this intellectual or social capital, they might be bringing those things a lot. And how can we use our capital and return to them, nourish them? Because if we're just extracting, then we're just doing it again. If we nourish those people. Yeah.
1: I've never thought of it in that way, actually. That's really given me a bit of an aha, like penny drop thing, you know, when you're just like, oh my God. And this is the thing is that, you know, there's so much reading to do. And I, you know, I've, I think read not so much around, um, I've read quite a lot around race. I think a lot of white people did, right, when the Black Lives Matter movement and that whole kind of new civil rights thing came through. It was like, oh, holy shit, this is a big wake-up call for me and I need to really educate myself. And I haven't actually done so much around gender, um, which I've, you know, even having this, I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> still still work to do. But I think that's the thing, um, is around curiosity as well. I think actually if we can potentially come at it from a space of curiosity like that for me extraction mindset i just suddenly was like oh my god okay that's something that i need to look at Mm -hmm. rather than it being like oh no i did something wrong or whatever it's like shit okay another blind spot (laughs) right let's let you know let's look at that let's shine some light on that Mm -hmm. um there's so many things I want to ask you. I feel like oh, I'm just looking at time and I'm like, oh God, this always happens on this podcast. I'm always like, ah, weighing up like time and, and chat. And it's like, oh. And um, if you could go back in time and have a chat with a young you, what's one piece of advice you might give to them? That is a good
0: question. I I knew you were going to ask this. (laughs) I wrote the notes ahead of time, and they all seem (laughs) (laughs) inadequate. Of course, Um, I would say just to keep that courage because Mm. it was. I didn't realize how much of my life, even as a youngster, was living in 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 this courageous place. Courageous place, and we lived Mm. in mostly white community and white schools, and in a white neighborhood, and then there was a lot of Indian community, so it was, like, very segregated in my life. Social things were often, with Indians doing in, you know, like, we'd have performances, or food, or Mm. music, things, and then this very white culture, and I didn't feel like I fit in properly in either, to be honest.
1: Mm.
0: I just, and so many points along the way, we talked about depression earlier, we talked about and I think just that older person, me, or like a uh, an older sibling,
1: Yeah. what I would have
0: liked to have been is like you're on the right track. Keep going with this courage one step in front of the other and mm. don't give up even though it feels not good at, at moments. Keep going.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think that thing around not fitting in as well is so um, poignant like it took me years to feel like I fitted in anywhere and Mm. um, I definitely resonate with that I know it's obviously in a completely probably different (laughs) different way but it's it's so so painful when you feel like there's not really somewhere where you fit or that people understand you Mm. and that you know I know that I spent I think this is potentially where my depression and stuff came from was just from masking and again I, I think I'm waiting if the NHS is listening, I've been on a wait list for two years. They've said it's going to be another two years, um, but I'm waiting to see about ADHD. And I think a lot of stuff maybe came from from that of being like, oh, I can't behave in this way or I can't say this thing or I can't move my body. I've got to stay still. I've got to, you know, and you, it kind of like creates this feeling of just like, I don't know, not, not, not belonging. Yeah, um, absolutely.
0: Schools and most places aren't neurodivergent friendly mm-hmm. at all. Mm. So it's and it and it can masking can look like depression or trauma, right? There's an overlap because they're all types of neurodiversity. To be honest, depression impacts our brains, so we're not in the same way that a neurotypical person is going to think and behave.
1: Yeah, I read something um, recently actually that really surprised me about depression and how it affects your eyes, oh. and that actually you literally see the world differently when you're depressed. Yeah. It kind of takes some of the colour out or something like that and I was like what no wonder you know when you think people Yay. talk about it making the world grey and people talk I was like shit yeah that's, that's super interesting there's so much to learn um tell me a little bit as well because I'd love to just touch on for people listening a little bit of, about the um Kota uh, constellation because why did you call it constellation rather than I don't know company or um collect i know that i'm sort of said collective uh earlier incorrectly and so i'd love to know how that word came about because I, I love that idea of constellation
0: hmm. i think it's uh, many factors the the biggest one probably is my name Anuradha is one of the 27 nakshatra so stars in uh, jyothic astrology or mm-hmm. And so I wasn't born under that star, but that name having that quality yep, certainly has impacted me. And, and you know, for a long time, I didn't like my name. I think it's only later in life that I've embraced it like, OK, I actually like my name. I wouldn't actually change it Yeah. after years of perhaps thinking it's so hard. No one pronounces it right, whatever. So that was part of it. It was the I've had two or three other names of my business before but this time it felt really important to capture my last name so I didn't change my name Mm. after getting married or anything um and and we do so that that side of my family some of them still live in India some still live in that village or near near where my grandfather lived and so on and so on so it was like a way of honoring ancestors and honoring Mm -hmm. that place and that land. And also this quality for me, community is super important and we're not always connected to every community in the same way. So like I might be in a constellation with this group here with the queer community and having friends and doing different things there. But then I might have this other community of people in the UK or people who I went to grad school with, right? Mm -hmm. So there's different facets of me and different facets of other people. What we're all working towards in that different in these different constellations of yeah. stars, different individuals coming together
1: yeah I think as well I, I might I don't want to get it wrong but I think I read on your website that you said about um, kind of illuminating and and liberating um, you know within companies as well and I thought oh, I love that like thought of it's this kind of constellation so there's maybe lot lots of different um you know like how this the stars in the sky in a constellation they're still a separate star but they're also part of something much bigger in the way that you know to illuminate and shine light on all these kind of areas that really it's kind of shadow work isn't it you know and it's like actually being able to bring some light into those spaces so i just thought oh, it's a really beautiful um mm-hmm. the way the language kind of illuminates the the work um as well it's beautiful thank you thank you for not only asking but
0: seeing the levels of symbolism that because for me all every single element in my company even my logo everything is 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 not me is not one person there's often a community effort behind so many things so
1: thank you for seeing those levels in, in that um, well, it's in, it, down to your obviously good copywriting and everything. That's, uh, when I'm when I'm doing my re- when I'm doing my research, you have obviously like got that message across, you know, through the, the things that you've written and your social media and your um, website as well. um What one thing do you wish you'd known about? And I'm sure there's way more than one thing. But, you know, it's, it's the question for the podcast. Um, what one thing do you wish you'd known about? You know, the work that you do and ethical practices I mean it's gonna be very hard to answer I imagine is one thing (laughs) thing. I guess
0: I think so much of the programming I received was there's some some part of me that doesn't belong that I'm the one like we talked about being a burden or being Mm. the one who's messed up in the family so much shame and I'm really um I'm really coming to grips with seeing that for what it was and not having to take that on. So I guess my takeaway from that is it's okay to be who you are, be where you are and just Mm. acknowledge that, right? Let's not be pretending to be someone else
1: Yeah. because we are
0: where we are and we can grow from where we are, but we can't deny that. And I think too much of my life I was denying
1: aspect yes. of the I was, oh I love that answer yeah. I really do because I, I and I think that comes back to what you were saying earlier as well around that kind of just questioning and just being able to you know this is why I, I love the idea of curiosity around everything because that way, it it sort of takes out the shame a little bit, and it takes out. It's just like, oh, okay, well, why do I do that thing, or why do I feel that way about that certain thing, or you know, mm-hmm. the way that you talk as well about that kind of inherent, um, oh, come on, brain, um, indoctrination into these kind of systems and into these spaces, and mm-hmm. it's like actually just being able to to question that and to come back to ourselves and and not deny those parts I think that's yeah beautiful beautiful um so is there anything else you'd like to add anything you want to share anything you wish I'd asked you that I hadn't asked you well first I want to say thank you so much
0: for your time because I have enjoyed this this went in a very different direction <laughs> than I had thought in my notes and I've enjoyed this thank you for making it a safe space to talk about uh race and gender and um and so on because there are there's a lot of people who in this country in my opinion we're 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 behind even the yeah. US conversation yeah, so being able to have that space to to look at it is amazing so i want to thank you for oh, that thank you and um what what do i wish you to ask me what are the ways we can um maybe how can we do this work when we do have chronic illness or mental mm. health things or like how can we keep showing up to do this work when we have these other challenges like when we're facing racism
1: that's such a good question yeah because I how th-
0: do you do it I'd like to hear your answer
1: first how do, do you, you know do it? what I do it in if I'm honest I do it in in fits and starts a bit and I think because like my mental health is pretty good now, most of the time. Like, it's rare that I have panic attacks anymore at all. Um, it's rare that my depression gets to the point where I can't get out of bed or I can't function. But I do still have to really monitor myself quite consistently. And there's things that I have to do that probably other people don't do. Um, and sometimes it will, you know, I can't keep on top of certain things like... I can't believe I'm admitting this on the podcast, but you know, keeping on top of things like just keeping my house tidy. Um, You know, I know that when my brain isn't functioning maybe as effectively as I know it can, um, my house will get really messy or I don't want to wash up or I because I just physically don't have the capacity or the energy to do all of the things that I need to do. And so some of those things slip. And so I guess when I'm in those spaces, my priority is to get myself back to uh, the optimum that I can be in any one time because I try not to give myself... narratives around good or bad if that makes sense so like oh when I'm not on top of this stuff then I'm bad and there's something wrong it's just like okay right now I don't have the capacity for all of these things and the capacity will come back because it always does but I just need to look after myself in in a different way and be more compassionate and more loving towards myself and I think when I'm in those kind of spaces it's actually quite hard to um hold space for anyone else other than my private clients and people that you you know and people will see when I had long covid recently I've been um suffering with long covid I haven't recorded the podcast I haven't written my daily newsletter I haven't done much social media at all because I just didn't have the capacity and then when I feel good and strong it's like right okay great let me get a new book let me learn some stuff let me journal out let me look at you know what other shadows have I got? What other ways can I be supportive in communities that maybe I'm not aware of? What other ways can I look at? Because one of the things I like to research and I'm quite interested in is how um, and actually even way before the Black Lives Matter thing blew up. I can't remember. It was June. was it? I remember it being summer and it was was it 2019, maybe even way before that, when I was doing research into my business, I started looking at data around. Um, access to care because my access to getting help was really slow and difficult. And then I started seeing like, hang on a minute, the wait lists are so much bigger if you're not white. The you know you're I think I wish I'd had the data to hang because I haven't looked at this correctly. Uh, I haven't looked at this for a while, so I'm, I might be incorrect. But it was something like you're nine or twelve times more likely to get sections if you're a black man for the same symptoms. Than if you're white, and I was like, that's what right.
0: true. you know, maternal, and I, maternal mortality,
1: like, um, you know, five times more five likely to likely five times. It's like that's oh, like boils my blood, you know, like genuinely, it's like childbirth anyway, you know, is a very difficult time, you're super vulnerable, you know, and then coming up against like medical racism, and the fact that, you know, your pain might not be listened to in the same way. And it's stuff that, you know, personally, I, I've experienced with certain doctors where they've not listened to me around certain things. I think part of that is being female. But then I think to add on top of that race and other, you know, other things that may make it even more difficult. I'm like, holy crap you know if it was hard for me (laughs) as a white woman how much harder must it be for other people so yeah I kind of that's something that I really like to to look into and support there's incredible charity actually I want to give a shout out to called Black Minds Matter um Mm -hmm. who I've uh, supported and they do incredible work getting um free courses of therapy with black therapists because that's another big issue of like getting access to a therapist who maybe has a similar life experience or similar you know race ethnicity gender um sexual orientation to you is quite tricky to to do as well so um they're an incredible charity so if people are listening and they want to support um I highly recommend looking up black minds matter and, and, um, supporting them. They're a great, great charity. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I've gone off from one here. have not a little bit.
0: Going on around. I love it. I love it. But I think
1: that rawness, that realness speaks to that,
0: that whole hustle culture that we had mentioned earlier, mm. that whole, you know, the goodness, right. That, because there is a whole thing, even with the pandemic, it has not really shown people by and large that ableism exists in mm. our society and to the, the, to the degree it shows up and the intersectionality with other things like we talked about medical racism. Mm. So that's that intersection of ableism and racism together mm. that, that, that people aren't having these conversations enough. People aren't kind of showing behind the scenes of mm. I had long COVID and this is what happened. A lot of my operations had to kind of come pair, pare down to the absolute necessities. That's so yeah. good. I wish more people would be frank about those things instead of talking about their whatever launches and whatever stuff they're doing Mm. and be honest saying how this is how that happened or this is how it doesn't happen.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I think that's one of the things I've always tried to be as honest as I can. And when I say honest as I can, I think when you're really in those spaces Sometimes you're masking and you're not even realising that you're masking. Sometimes if you're going through something, like when I was doing another layer of um, some trauma work, I don't want to talk about it because I'm in the work and it's painful. And, you know, maybe I might want to write about that at some point or talk about that at some point, but if I'm in it, I might not want to. And that's also okay. And I think sometimes when you've got like almost like a public space, a public space where you share about things like trauma, mental health, you know, there may be an expectation for you to be like fully in your truth and embodied in your truth at all times and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And sometimes my truth is I want to hide under a blanket, eat some ice cream, and I don't want to talk to anyone. (laughs) And why should we have to,
0: because of capitalism, have to even monetize that we have to monetize how bad we're feeling. And that, that I don't recommend anybody having to do that.
1: And sharing... I can't remember what she said. Um, Brené Brown had a really beautiful quote on this, actually, around... Um, essentially, she was sort of saying, you know... I, I'm I'm probably going to butcher this. <laughs> I don't know why. My listeners know that I do this a lot. Because <laughs> I never know what the questions are going to be. The answers are not always very well researched. Um, but she said something along the lines of, you know, um, vulnerability isn't necessarily you know crying on camera for example so you might see some people i see this quite a lot on social media now people and and this is no judgement this is actually coming from a place of just um it's not not something that i personally would feel comfortable doing and maybe other people do feel comfortable doing it so there's a disconnect in my understanding right mm-hmm. but they might have a panic attack on camera they might cry on camera and say oh my god I'm so depressed and this is happening and maybe that's part of their process right and maybe that's part of them sharing their truth and that's cool so I'm not saying people should or shouldn't do that people should do whatever they feel called to do but for me it's like if I'm having a panic attack the last thing I'm thinking of is getting my phone yeah. out <laughs> and, I, and so it's yes she was sort of sharing that's that right. basically I can't remember the language she used, but basically, that's not always vulnerability. That's almost like emotional dumping, yeah, rather or, than it, true vulnerability, or so like, I, or like performance. There's a performance element to it, possibly, potentially. But you know, when sometimes I think with that performance element, it's like if part of your because um, because I see that on social media a lot anyway, regardless of whether it's to do with mental health, this kind of performance piece. But I think. We're so trained to get our validation externally yes that, that it's almost like you can't really blame people that when um, I have this kind of framework that I, I work within um, with clients and within the membership and like two of the parts within that is like acceptance um, is one of the A's validation and values mm-hmm. and I think often we're so um, like you say indoctrinated into especially as women, people that identify as women you know be beautiful don't say things that are going to be controversial Uh, be graceful um you know the way that you dress has to be a certain thing depending how old you are you know like these kind of things that that we're just indoctrinated into so that when we then try and go uh, where am I going to get my validation from we're not necessarily automatically getting it from ourselves because we haven't been taught to do that we haven't been taught to say yeah. I love you I accept you just the way that you are I think you're an incredible human being and you're you have these great traits like maybe you're super kind or maybe you're very um funny or maybe you're loving or maybe you're this we're actually looking for someone else to tell us that I, I want you to tell me that I'm beautiful I want you to tell me that I'm accepted in these spaces yeah. I want you to tell me that I'm kind or that I'm and so then you are going to perform in that way to try and get yeah, exactly. So and nugget. I don't mean performance
0: necessarily in a negative way. Sometimes no, like, we're talking about masking. We are doing yeah. what other people think
1: that mm. we should be,
0: right? There's just so much like care work that's as- associated with, you know, someone who's been, for me, socialized as a woman in Asian mm. culture. Then I'm supposed to be doing care work and mm. being you know, a certain way all the time. And that to me, so I can perform that. I can do it if necessary, but it's really tiring. And that's not really
1: who I am. Not to say I'm not a nurturing person, but that that's certainly people nurture in different ways as well. And this is the thing, isn't it? It's like, there's such a standardized, you know, what I found interesting, just kind of looking into your work, there's almost this very standardized thing of like, to be you know when you even if you just look at archetypes like to be a mother to be um a lover to be this to be you know there's so many it's almost like this very narrow I've always felt like this as a woman there's this very narrow space that we're allowed to operate in Mm -hmm. and actually for most women that I know we're not in that space (laughs) We might have to operate in it, but really if we were able to be fully embodied, be fully, you know, in our truth or whatever that means, you know, we would uh, are fully authentic. We're not in that narrow little.
0: And most of us aren't right. Most mm -hmm. of us aren't fitting into that. So why not just kind of look at that whole framework that's been Mm -hmm. put on us and say, do I really need to take this on board? Do I really need to put this on people? And then even with myself, with coming back to chronic illness and so on. Mm -hmm. I try to make my life where I've set my business up where from low tide, can I still run it? Oh, I love that. A lot of the kind of practices I try, because a a fair number of the people who work with me are chronically ill or neurodivergent, Mm -hmm. so they're not fitting in in the world in the Mm -hmm. way that they're supposed to. So I'm like, how can we set things up in a way that you can be successful? And it can be
1: more um, uh, sustainable. Yes. Right, and more authentic. Yeah, definitely. I think I definitely uh, could take a leaf out of your book there. <laughs> <laughs> I just like love to do all the things, and I get really overexcited about all the stuff, and then I'm like, "How are you, a one person?" <laughs> There is only so much hours in a day. There's not really, uh, the, nobody could actually do what you've set out to do necessarily unless they had a team, you know. And then I get tired and go, shit, okay, I'm going to have to have a little rest and then yeah. come back to it. So, yeah, sustainability might be something I need to, <laughs> yeah. need to look at. And I like that idea of low tide when it, rather than it being, I like that analogy. It's almost like it's very fluid, and again like taking out that's been a key thing I think for me is taking out blame when I'm not able to operate in the ways that I know that I can I know that I'm capable of but it is, it is like a tide isn't it sometimes mm-hmm. I'm able to operate and I'm like great my symptoms are really low and they don't really bother me and other mm-hmm. times it's like oh hello darkness my old friend <laughs> 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 what yeah. do you need now yeah. oh it has been such a pleasure to have this conversation with you thank you so much for your time and uh, for joining and sharing all these incredible tools and questions I think it's going to be so helpful for people um I'll put links and everything obviously in the show notes but if people want to find out more about your work how can they get in touch what's the best way for you yeah
0: most places I'm either by my name Anuradha Kota or or the kota constellation and if you're interested in that course it is sowingpostcapitalistseeds.com beautiful and is it self-directed or is there specific times when it's running yeah specific times so the next cohort will be next uh, next fall so people can sign up already and get ready and then there'll be some resources they'll get ahead of time but then we'll we'll join all at the same time this fall
1: Perfect. That's so great. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you as always to all the listeners for listening. It really is for you guys that we that I look for these interesting people to talk to and share these conversations. Um, As always, if you are listening on uh, or watching on YouTube, if you can subscribe to the channel, it's going to really help us get more listeners. If you are listening on your favourite podcast platform, please do leave us a little review and also um, click that follow button so that you get notified when all the new episodes are out and again it really really does help us to reach more people the more people we reach the more interesting guests we can get and so we grow together thank you so much for listening and being here as always i'll be back with another episode very soon much love we hope
0: you've enjoyed listening as much as rachel enjoys making this podcast why not share it with a friend in need of some heartwarming inspiration? And if you really love it, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts as it really helps us reach and inspire more people.
1: Thanks for listening.